You're listening to Anti-Racism in the Disciplines, the podcast that explores the complex histories of the liberal arts in order to reimagine their future. I'm your host, Brian Edwards, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. In this episode, we'll talk about philosophy. Philosophy is arguably the oldest of the liberal arts. A basic way of defining it is to say that philosophy is a field in which people ask big questions about life, death, and everything in between. What is reality? What is knowledge? What is truth? What is morally good? In asking and trying to answer these questions through logic and argumentation, philosophy is seeking out the most general truths about the universe, especially as it relates to human beings. Philosophy can be defined by its main goal, to get answers for what the late Charles Mills called the deep eternalities of the human condition. Today, we will examine the history and structures of the discipline, and we'll do it in the way that philosophers themselves go about things, by asking the big questions. Joining me is Lionel McPherson, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Tufts University. Dr. McPherson received his PhD in philosophy from Harvard University, and since then he's been studying and publishing on topics such as war and terrorism, the basis and extent of obligations, and race. His first book, The Afterlife of Race, is forthcoming from Oxford University Press. Welcome, Dr. McPherson. Thanks for joining us. So philosophy predates the idea of race. Philosophy is a discipline. So in a way, race doesn't necessarily structure the discipline the same way it might be entrenched in, say, sociology or anthropology. And yet philosophy has been at the center of the development of race as a more pernicious idea, as you discuss in your book. So in many of the conversations we've had in this series, we talk about how race structures a discipline. Is the better question here, how does philosophy structure race? Could you talk more about this link between modern philosophy and the modern idea of race? Or maybe how did philosophy contribute to the idea of major races as we know it today? It's a little tricky. So here's the story as I understand it. Here's the story as I tell it. And when I talk about the modern idea of race, it's the modern idea of race as continental groups of people. So, you know, people from supposed to be originally Africa as a whole, they're supposed to be a racial people, and then Europeans and Asians. And that owes to Bernier, a French physician and traveler, came up with this taxonomic scheme in 1684. But it really wasn't about anything except characteristic physical differences by roughly by continent. So there's not that much that could be done with that. So what Kant did is he put some substance in it, and then he, as far as I can tell, he's the one that introduced this more rigorous, hierarchical, what's supposed to be rigorous, um, hierarchical conception of races. And that, as I say, that's really about racial mind or brain, and especially with regard to the issue of intelligence. Not just intelligence, but dispositions to certain behavioral characteristics that are supposed to be a matter of nature, not culture or nurture. So Kant is the one that brought in, as I put it, you know, sort of a heavy-duty substance. This is the inheritance we have now. So people are thinking about races, essential differences, and really essential differences of mind slash brain. I like to say brain because I think that also, that makes it more clear, like, I think kind of how bizarre the view is. Mind is a little more abstract, but some of the brains are supposed to be different. And the brains are supposed to have extraordinary bearing on people's 
you know, capacities and tendencies. So that, as far as I can tell, that hierarchical conception of race comes from Kant. So it's not just what people are calling race as such that was the problem. It seems like to me the problem comes in when then there is this hierarchical stuff that's attached to it and it's supposed to be a matter of intelligence and other kind of mental characteristics. So yesterday you took on the title or the kind of premise of the series, Anti-Racism and the Disciplines. Just explain when you hear the phrase anti-racism, what it means to you, or the problems that you see with that construction. Yeah, well, that's the problem. It doesn't really mean anything very much to me because I don't really know what people have in mind. And when I look at what is supposed to be the demonstrations, they're not very impressive to say the least. And they're actually, as I would put it, counterproductive and counterprogressive at worst. So what I was talking about the other day was sometimes we were saying, we got this commitment, like my home institution, Tufts, they brand themselves now. We're an anti-racist institution. They keep saying we're an anti-racist. I'm like, what's the evidence for this? And it seems to be a matter of attitude. We have certain attitudes. We want to project this attitude. We want our students to have this. We want our faculty to have it. But it's not really clear what the it is. So, so I don't know. I don't know what anti-racism is. And my concern is that it's more about attitudes or feelings or microaggressions, as people call them. And I'm not saying the climate, I'm not saying these things don't matter, but my concern much more, and I think that the history of the way that, as I put it, not race, but really race ideology rhetoric has been deployed has been in service of subjugation and exploitation. And now I'd say non-repair. I'm a Black American, descendant of American slavery. I like to think about that case. In the United States, it's an excellent test case. So I'm like, what do the declarations of anti-racism have to do with sort of, I put it, the racial caste formation in the United States with Black Americans as descendants of American slavery as a bottom caste group. And that's not a matter of attitude. I mean, that's just a matter of like resources, opportunities. So I'm thinking about, well, what kinds of attitudes or policies would address that gross source of social inequality? And I don't really generally hear that. I hear more about diversity, equity, and inclusion, for example. So I'm like, is anti-racism supposed to be about something like diversity, equity, inclusion, or is it supposed to be about justice? I just want to pursue different parts of that answer. So is it about the actual policies or lack thereof the problem, or is the term racism itself that's embedded in anti-racism part of the problem? Yes, I think that's right. The term itself, racism, I'm not sure. And one, it's very, it's a very heated term. I generally, at least in like you know, more formal context, I try to avoid the term altogether because it brings a lot of heat, but there's not a whole lot of light. And so people just tune out and it gets used. And all sometimes people just mean bias or bigotry, right? I think of something as more kind of structural, institutional. Sometimes people are just ignorant, file that under bigotry, but it's, they're not necessarily committed to sort of, you know, profoundly unjust social structures. Sometimes they might be. So I don't generally find the term racism all that helpful, especially given how much pushback it generally encounters in the United States at this point. Like nobody wants to claim to be racist, but we have still, you know, some version of the status quo with, let's say, a racial caste system with Black Americans as a bottom caste group, just by the numbers. And oftentimes when people are talking about racism, they have attitudes and beliefs and that kind of thing in mind. I understand, and philosophers, um, Jorge Garcia, um, in a discussion group with him, Larry Blum, they have that kind of orientation, and I don't find that helpful. All right, so I want to ask about philosophy and philosophical thinking. So you, you know, are an undergraduate summa cum laude philosophy major from Princeton. You get a PhD in philosophy from Harvard. You've been practicing as a philosopher, you know, for 20 years since then or more. 
um, you, you are a philosopher and you obviously think like a philosopher. And yet at the same time, there's a profound critique of philosophy in the work that you're doing here. What I want to ask is since in this larger series or enterprise, we're hearing from sociologists who are pushing at the discipline in certain kinds of ways and classicists and so on. What is philosophical thinking or philosophy have, uh, what place does it have in this larger conversation that the disciplines are having as they kind of excavate their own histories? I mean, in other words, can we learn, can these lessons be brought into other disciplines? Because it's sort of, I don't want to say deconstructive move here, but it's putting a healthy, necessary pressure on every term we use. Is that philosophical thinking? Again, I'm asking this because people in the audience of this podcast, many of whom are not students of philosophy. And so I'm imagining the kind of mind-blowing experience of the way your mind works through these questions. That's a challenging question, uh, but I might have an angle for answering it in ways that might be helpful. So people make a distinction in philosophy, and, and I work and trained in what's broadly thought of as analytic philosophy, you know, so language-based and so it plays out differently from the so-called continental philosophy, which is mainly French-German tradition. So there are revisionists and there are more like descriptive philosophers. And so I'm a revisionist. I want to look at things. They seem familiar. You know, well, what are they really talking about? And does that make sense? And whereas descriptive people are, they'd say, well, we're committed to certain things like free will or moral responsibility or, or race. And so we're not here to basically try to rewrite that and fundamentally rethink that. We're just trying to think through that in a way that, could make sense of that. And I'm like, well, why make sense of that? Maybe it's not worth making sense of. Maybe it doesn't make any sense. And that's how I approach it when it comes to race. So I'm just a revisionist, but I think I have a pretty, but it's a common sense orientation. I'm like, well, what? I don't know what people are talking about. So why don't we just be clear? If we're trying to, if we're trying to be clear, and my suspicion is that people are kind of determined when it comes to race stuff from the Supreme Court to philosophers working the metaphysics of race, are determined not to be clear. And the reason to be a revisionist is, I think, we can get clarity, and sometimes clarity means we've got to give up certain ideas or words that seem indispensable. So I want to say, sure, race is indispensable. I can say everything you want to say with more clarity. African-identified peoples, done. I don't need the race language to do it. And say, yes, there's a whole ideology and rhetoric but Africa-identified peoples versus Europe-identified peoples versus Asia-identified peoples. All this race stuff, I think, is largely a diversion. It doesn't shed any light on that. So I'm from the revisionist school. I'm, back, I'm not really interested in thinking about it. I'm like, I'm not, I don't just want to have a more refined or better understanding of what I and other people already believe that's you know pretty standard. To me, the excitement of philosophy was like, I thought you could be free to rethink things. And maybe, you know, things that people were committed to, they need, need to set them aside or it turns out upon further review, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But a lot of pushback or more like descriptive, I guess. We're just trying to, you know, get a fuller account and understanding and maybe that's important for the human experience, something that I'm, I'm like, well, I don't even know that that makes sense and I don't know why we need to be committed to it. And I don't know why we can't, when we think through these things, maybe we'll end up in a fundamentally different place. So that's how I think. What do we miss by focusing on debates about race especially those that seek to prove or disprove the reality of race, whether it's natural, biological, or social? Well, I think we miss everything. That's why, that's why, that's why I care so much about it, because I, like, I don't understand, and I've, I've 
said this in my discussion group. I've been saying it for almost 20 years now. Why does this matter? One, it's not clear that you're talking about the same thing. In fact, it seems sometimes they're proud to assert that they're not talking about the same. They have any, at least four more so-called plausible metaphysical views. And I just can't figure out, well, what's at stake? I think that's a philosophically obscure project because I don't know how what it means to talk about what the thing is when people don't know even what the thing is supposed to be in the first place. I don't know how you search for that. I mean, it's just a basic point. I mean, what, what are you looking for? And I ask the question and folks, they act like, you know, I'm like, no, I don't know. I mean, I'm not playing. I really don't know. And, and that's how I got into this space. I'm just trying to track what people are talking about. They say race. Well, is it a social thing? Is it a natural thing? Is it a natural and a social thing, right? Is it a mythical non-existent thing? Is it some other thing or do people even know what it is? But people use the term so comfortably and act like they're searching, I think, for a common thing. But then sometimes it seems like they're not searching. So I'm like, what is this supposed to be relevant to? So I don't see what the connection between those debates and high philosophy, you know, we call it the metaphysics of race. I don't see what that has to do with considerations about historical injustice and reparative justice. I just don't see what the connection is. And oftentimes, they might gesture at some sort of connection, but it's very obscure what exactly that connection is supposed to be because they don't really do any of the history or the politics. So it seems to me it's diversionary or a distraction. And I just don't see why pointing that out it should be pretty controversial because it seems to me plainly true. Just look at what is the connection between that. Let's say race is real in some esoteric biological sense. Why is that supposed to matter? I have an answer to that question. I think it only matters in connection with the history of race via Kant, where it's basically a condition for then this further investigation about racial mind slash brain. That's what I think. So at first you have to establish that there are such natural groups, and then you can begin to you know, study their biological qualities. And I think insofar as anybody has great reason to care about this, that's ultimately going to turn to questions of intelligence. And so I don't know why they're fixated on trying to, as I see, get to the bottom. I'm like, there's really nothing to get to the bottom of. So I just prefer to use the language of their Africa-identified peoples, Asia-identified peoples, Europe-identified peoples. Can you say more about a concept in your book that's called geo-ancestry yeah. that you develop uh, and you introduce in the book? What is the concept of geo-ancestry that you're introducing? And so, how does it differ from race? When people say race, I'm like, well, there's no thing, or it's not clear what the thing is. So I say the race thing. And I'm not trying to be clever about it. Like, I don't know. And even when I was earlier versions of the manuscript, I was struggling. If I just put race, but then I don't know what that means. I don't know then what a reader is supposed to know. So I just said the race thing to make it clear it's kind of a placeholder. We don't even know what the thing is. We don't know if it's the same thing that people are talking about. We don't know if it's a different thing. We don't know if people know what they're talking about at all. They're just using the word. So I wanted to introduce an alternative and the advantage was to leave the heaviest baggage of race debates and ideology rhetoric behind and just specify what I mean. So there's nothing super fancy about it. It's like, by geo-ancestry, I mean roughly visible continental ancestry plus social political lineage. That's what I mean. If people who are invested in race language want to say, well, we can use that and that's what we'll define. And if there is a consensus about that, then I'm fine. I would have no problem with the term. What I have in mind would have prevailed, and that would be fine. Then at least we know what we're talking about. And then we could begin to think about, well, in what ways is this significant? Um, visible continental ancestry plus social political lineage. So concrete type of example, people have, you know, to say blacks or the blacks or the black race, or we're running racially black. I mean, people coming over from Namibia to the United States, what do they have to do with black Americans? Black Americans are African ancestry owes to Atlantic Africa. So this 
you know, relatively small Western chunk, Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, Gambia. And of course, if they're from Namibia, then I'm assuming they pretty much have full African ancestry, unlike typical Black Americans. They didn't go through the experience of transatlantic slavery. I mean, there's there's a different people. They're different national people. And they've had a different experience historically. And also, when they come to the United States, they will have a different experience in many contexts. They're regarded as different, regarded as African. It makes a difference. White Americans make distinctions between so-called Blacks. So just grouping people all together by some, you know, under some racial category, I think is not critically helpful. Certainly when it comes to thinking about justice. Oh, well, what kind of justice claim would they have in the United States? They came freely as immigrants. They didn't go through transatlantic slavery. They're not really members of the bottom caste group. They weren't part of the group. The group is descendants of American slavery. These people are from Namibia. Last time you spent some time, and it was really both provocative and fascinating, distinguishing between the use of Black with the capital B and Black with the lowercase b. You know, in the last year and a half, there's been definitely a movement towards Black with the capital B, as used as an adjective. Yes. I've been puzzled by this for now 30 years. I worked at a Black newspaper in Brooklyn when I got out of college for a couple years. And they were capitalizing the Bs. And I was like, but they weren't capitalizing the Ws. And, you know, I just ask questions. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm just curious. And then when I don't get a very satisfying answer, I ask more questions. And as I found out in the working world, like they offered me an explanation. It wasn't to my satisfaction. I kept asking questions, but at some point they're like, look, <laughs> this way it's going to be. We gave you some explanation. Maybe you don't like the explanation. So they wanted to capitalize it. So my concern is this function that capitalization is functioning as a kind of, I call it a vague honorific. And it's not specific. In fact, it kind of masks the specificity because anybody, Africans, Caribbeans, all sorts of people are operating now under the capital B. So I want to use the capital B, Black Americans, as this historical national people. So that's descendants of American slavery. It's almost like an ethnic Italian or Jewish American or something like that. To me, that's not an honorific. It's to name a particular national people. Say Black Americans as descendants of American slavery are homegrown under obviously odious circumstances. And here is slavery, mass coercive reproduction. We are a distinctive national people. We're not just some general black. Now, when the only blacks around were descendants of American slavery, then, of course, using the lowercase b, it works fine because we know who we're talking about. So it would be helpful. It's more clarifying to say, you know, black American, capital B, that refers to a particular national people, homegrown blacks, descendants of American slavery, Lowercase b would just be Afro-identified peoples as such. They needed pizza sense of American slavery. They don't need to be American. It could be black, wherever. But it's not just the honorific thing to me makes no sense. And it obscures specificity or suggests that specificity isn't really that important. I've also encountered that, including by philosophers. Oh, nobody makes distinctions. Yes, they do make distinctions. And not because I've observed it or because I said it, because... When philosophers, if you actually look outside your discipline, people have done all sorts of extraordinary work. They've studied this thing. Sociologists and psychologists have empirical findings. White Americans make distinctions. It's a fact. It's not just something I speculated armchair or observed anecdotally. So I also is want there, to capitalize is, the W because I think W, that is functioning as an ethnic group. And this, they become a member of the white caste. The Supreme Court basically says the same thing. The American was white. It's as in Plessy. Plessy v. Ferguson. This idea of racial caste is not a trendy thing. You know, 
Isabel Workerson's book, it's great to put it back on the table, but there's a long-standing tradition of thinking about race as a matter of racial caste. It goes back to anti-slavery movements, at least 1839. Frederick Douglass had it, Boyce had it, Peter Merle had it, sociologist, psychologist, actually John Dollard had it. It's a long-standing thing. It was lost for about 60 years, and now it's back on the table. And so by that same logic, I also think that white deserves a cup. I'm not talking about Albanians or Finnish or Norwegians. We're in the United States. We're talking about how this sort of pan-white ethnicity functions basically in a racial caste context. And what's the effect of dropping or moving away from the term African-American? Because that invites a kind of obscurity. And people are willing, like Africans are happy to sign up to that. And philosopher Anthony Abbey is like, oh, I'm African. We're all, you know, all these African. So no, no. We're not talking about that. And lowercase b blacks who are not descendants of American slavery are not very eager to call themselves black. So they will help to disambiguate the uses, I think, in a way that African-American people can feel more comfortable signing on to the African. For African-identified peoples, I would agree. So when we say discipline of philosophy, to me, it could mean two different things. One is kind of what philosophers do or philosophical thinking or the history of philosophy. But it also can mean maybe a more local usage, how philosophy is practiced at this moment in time in universities. So the discipline, the departments of philosophy, the job market, the graduate student market place and so on. Um, So let's talk about that latter discipline, because that's really important to the work that we're doing, whatever we call it. Has mainstream philosophy or philosophy departments or the discipline as, as it's practiced been confronting the kinds of questions that we're asking? I mean, or let me put it a different way. What, if any, have been the ramification on the protests that emerged from the Floyd murder, you know, that become much more prevalent in American discussions? Nothing new, of course, but much more visible and kind of forcing a lot of conversations in 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 corridors where they weren't happening, let's say. Not in academic philosophy very much. I mean, so it seemed like they just were doubled down on the diversity, equity, inclusion stuff. Diversifying syllabi and reading list and outreach efforts, even though those don't really translate generally or reliably into hiring efforts. So uh, not much is happening. And I don't think much is going to happen. And I think that's just, that's part of the sociology and culture of the profession. What could we do? What what should we do? Well, who administrators? Well, I, I I mean, who, 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 I that, some of us have power to do things. Some of us are just in the profession. Like, yeah, no. So that we was carefully constructed. What might we do? What might we do that would work better? So you talked about opening up syllabi or adding. To no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't think that helps. I think that's Outreach largely. Is, yeah. No, no. I think I think you don't need to do all that. Just hire some people, and if you're having trouble hiring, then train them and. You're saying, well, I don't know where they are. It shouldn't be that hard to get the word out and say, you know, philosophy actually wants you. You don't just have to feel like, you know, you're imposing on people and bothering them, asking, hey, what's up with, like, Kant and race? And he did a lot of ideological rhetorical damage, and we're still living with that legacy. And you all pretty much have made it a dogma, the mainstream of the profession. I'm not, I've seen this in action. It's a dogma that race stuff has nothing to do, even from like the founder of, you know, modern racial racist ideology rhetoric. Kant. Yeah, Kant. Yeah, that, that has, that's supposed to have nothing to do with his thought, even though it's there in his thought. And this was back in the day. I mean, people were writing longhand in ink. He didn't just dash some stuff off on a tweet. I mean, he went out of his way to write this and integrate it in his 
mainstream philosophical works. So it's to be taken seriously. And I think the problem I have is like students, black students, lowercase b, black American students, especially we've developed a sense of when things don't feel right. Some people say, oh, well, you know, we're standard good liberals. No, we're anti-racist and we aren't actively discriminating and we hope we're not passively discriminating. We're not, we're committed. If we are, we're committed to not doing those things, but I don't think they really understand just how hostile the culture and the background of quite a bit of Western philosophy we're doing is, both history and present. It's very disconcerting to be told that, well, as a matter of dogma, I mean, they don't know. They haven't thought about what relation Kant's theory of race would have on his conception of humanity and rationality as it factors in his moral philosophy. It seemed to me that's a fruitful area of inquiry. And people coming from outside the typical profile of folks who go into philosophy can pick up on this. So you're pretty much, I feel like you're entering on squarely their terms and they set the rules and there are certain dogmas like we just can't talk about it. It doesn't come up. Never came up in all my schooling in philosophy on race, when it does come up, I hear reports, even sorry, in my own department, it pretty much gets shot down as a matter of dogma. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's important. That's too bad. And, you know, there's a place for that. Maybe take McPherson's course, Racism and Social Inequality, reverse the race seminars I teach. I use the term in my course descriptions because there was a marketing. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do. So I have to confess in my own, you know, marketing my courses, racism shows up, race shows up. But that's just basically cordoned off. We don't talk about Hume and Kant and, you know, it's not just that they were racist. That's not interesting. All sorts of racist folk. That's not surprising or interesting. What's important is that Kant is a foundational figure for modern, at least racialism, right? Essential differences of mind between racial peoples. Some version of that. Kant had that. The guy who gave us the scientific racial language that remains in use, Blumenbach, he was actually anti-racist. And, and by anti-racist, yeah, historically situated, anti-slavery, and very humanistic, not just in theory, like apparently he was an anti-slavery activist, and he cared, even though he gave us the terms, you know, Caucasian, Mongoloid, Negro, and all that kind of stuff. But there was no hierarchy of racial mind as Blumenbach was using it. So it's really con. He has a lot to answer for, and it's pretty much off limits to discuss that in relation to the philosophical work that most interests people. And I'm thinking right now, especially his moral and political philosophy. I'm thinking of the 10-year plan, four years for college, six years for most PhDs. We want to change the discipline as it's practiced in departments of philosophy in the United States. We got next year's incoming first-year class. Do we recruit in high schools? Do we reimagine the curriculum of the undergraduate philosophy major? You know, it starts earlier than the PhD itself. Yes. I think the serious change is going to have to come from the outside. The philosophy profession is, I think, incapable of self-correcting. And then people get mad at me when I say they say, oh, why do you have to be such a downer? You're discouraging people. No, I'm not discouraging anybody. That's what there is. Now, some people want to accommodate themselves to that. That's their business. But we all know that it's not a welcoming atmosphere. And we all know that versions of these discussions have been had for at least the last 40 years. Yes, probably longer. So change is going to have to come basically via mandate and administrators who are committing to saying, you, you all have a problem, you're going to need to do something, and we're going to start providing resources to do that thing, and not necessarily providing resources to do some of the other things that you might prefer to do. So I think that's basically the way, because otherwise, I don't think, not in my lifetime, I don't think the profession is capable of serious course correction on its own. 
I love talking to you. Thank you so much for having, taking the time to speak with us today. If you liked this podcast, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, teachers, or students, or share it on social media. And let us know how you are contributing to anti-racist scholarship and teaching at our website, liberalarts.tulane.edu slash anti-racism and the disciplines podcast. I'm your host, Brian Edwards. This podcast was produced by Gabriela Garcia Mays. Original music is by Corey Diane. Our production assistant was Maggie Green.